0: This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Tonight we are kicking off a brand new series that I am super fired up about called Honor Up. Say it with me, Honor Up. I recognize at the outset of kicking off this series that there's going to be a lot of questions that you guys are going to have for me throughout this series. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, on your smartphone or in your notepad, for those of you that are taking literal notes, I love you. You are a note taker. You are a history maker (laughs) in my books. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down my email address, jason at courageouschurch.com. jason at courageouschurch.com. We're going to spend the next six weeks diving into the subject of what it means to honor up. We're going to be looking at what the Bible says about honor. And I realize in going through each and every week, there's going to be some controversial topics that we're going to cover There's going to be some hot topics that we're going to cover. There may be even some areas where you're going to want more illumination and more information and more help from your pastor. And I would love nothing more than to have that conversation with you. But I thought at the outset of this, it would be good for you guys to have my email for those of you that don't know it so that you guys can send me your questions because we're going to get into some hot stuff. And uh, I'm excited. I, I've been really looking forward to this. From the moment that I sat down in January and began to pray into what this series would look like, I really felt like the Lord said, it's time for my church to return to honor. It's time for my church to grab a hold of honor. For too long, we've allowed honor to be hijacked by other people and redefined in their image rather than the, in the image of the one who created us, rather than in the image of the one who has a whole lot to say about honor. And so tonight... We're going to get into this. Our text for this series is going to be 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. So if you're taking notes, 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. And for any of of you watching online, we just greet you in the name of Jesus. And if you're listening to this message, thank you. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 for most of this series. Tonight, let's begin by reading from verse 9. And uh, I'm going to read it from my awesome preacher's Bible here, but you can use the screen if you'd like. Beginning in verse 9, it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Say light with me tonight. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now pause right here with me for a moment. This letter is being written to the church. It's Peter's letter to his church. And there's a little bit of debate about when it was actually written, but it was written at a time where Christians, Jesus followers, people that have put their hope, faith, and trust in Christ were being persecuted for their faith. Now, right now, we know that in the world, there is a whole lot of craziness going on. Am I wrong? No, there's a whole lot of craziness going on. And we aren't the first generation to experience world war. We're not the first generation to experience a pandemic. We're not the first generation to experience hardship. Come on. For many of us, this is actually our first experience with war, for those of you that are in your 20s or maybe early 30s. But the world has been at war with itself and with each other long before we got on the scene. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so in the midst of this, almost 2,000 years ago, give or take, God's people were being greatly persecuted to the point of feeling crushed. They were feeling distraught, discouraged, frustrated, hurting, confused. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah. Yeah. And so Peter, being a good shepherd, being a good pastor is feeding his lambs in the way that Jesus told him to, and he's encouraging them to remember that God has an identity for his people in the midst of whatever they're going through, whether it be suffering, we talked a little bit about that last week, or whether it be joy and blessing and abundance. He says this, you are a chosen people. You are royalty. You are holy, meaning set apart, distinct from. You are a people for my own possession that you may proclaim my praise because I've brought you out of darkness and into light. Anybody been brought out of darkness into light? And he goes on to say, once you were not even a people, you were scattered. And I gathered you together and you became God's people. Say God's people. So the scope of this letter is for God's people. Meaning that we can read it today as a letter that was written for them, but to us. Okay, so there's eternal consequence to what we're going to read tonight, and I believe some practical application for our own lives that we can apply. He goes on to say this in verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which do what? Wage war against your soul. The last couple of weeks, we talked about how to stand our ground in the midst of the battle. And we sang a little bit about that tonight. But there is a real enemy of your soul that wants to see you fail, that wants to see you retreat into a life of sin. And the Bible here says that it's raging or it's being waged against you. Verse 12, therefore, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Say honorable. The title of this series is Honor Up. And I believe that right now we are living in a time where the world is looking for cues as to how to walk through what we're about to walk through in the next 5 to 10, 15, 20 years. In the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, God has a message for his people, and it's this. Be honorable. Be honorable. Be honorable. How? How? do we go about being honorable? That's really the question, and we're gonna get into some of that tonight. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's a great word, by the way, as evildoers, they may see your what? Good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Say foolish people. And here we arrive at the crux of it all. Live as people who are free. How many are thankful for the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus? But then he places a condition on it. But not as those using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And then he finishes it. But living as servants of God. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor Everyone kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? He doesn't really leave anybody out when he says the word everyone. I looked in the Greek, and the meaning of the, of the word everyone in the Greek is everyone. <laughs> I looked to see if there was like a little escape clause for those that I don't like, those that think differently than me, those that dress differently than me, those that have different political beliefs than me. And unfortunately, I couldn't find it because the word everyone means everyone. He goes on to say, love the brotherhood, meaning love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And by doing so, you will fear God. And if we would have stopped right there, I think we would all, would have been okay. I think we would all have been pretty content with that. But then he adds on one more little tidbit. He says, honor the emperor. Now, this is the one that I struggle with the most. And I think this is going to be controversial for some of you because I'm going to say a few things that might ruffle your your feathers. And I hope so, because if all I ever say is things that you like and agree with, then I'm not being a faithful pastor and minister of God's word. The emperor in this day and age was a little man named Nero. Anybody heard of him, Emperor Nero? Now there's debate, I'll I'll, I'll point this out for those that aren't familiar, there is debate as to whether or not it's actually Emperor Nero or Emperor Domitian, okay? So most critical scholars believe it's Nero, that this letter was written at the time that Nero was reigning in Rome. But there's a few that actually think it was Emperor Domitian, that it was actually a little bit later. Here's the deal. I looked up both of these guys in my uh, Wikipedia, if you will, And they're both pretty horrible dudes. They would take Christians and fillet them on poles to light their orgy parties. I don't know about you guys, but none of our presidents have done that yet. Come on. I don't know about you guys, but I don't don't think any of us have experienced that kind of persecution yet. But I can tell you that right now in the world, there are Christians living in hiding because of the impact that the governor or emperor or system of rule will have upon them for openly sharing their faith. And they face martyrdom, they face real persecution, they face hardship, they face the risk of being killed for what they believe. We are a blessed people to live in the nation that we live in. Does anybody else agree with me on that or believe that? For some of you that have come from other nations, for some of you you're going back to other nations, you can avouch that the United States in all of its kind of messed upness is still pretty dang great. It's still pretty dang great because it it provides us and affords us a certain measure or level of freedom that a lot of other nations don't have. I've been all over the world. I've traveled over 14 countries and nations. I was in Nigeria, Africa back in 2005, and I was ministering with my dad and, and we were spending some time at at some friends of ours church, they invited us to come out and to do some music ministry and to preach a little bit. And I went out there and I, being uh, kind of naive at the age of 23, 24, took my camera and thought it'd be really great to walk the streets and take pictures of people. Well, not everybody liked that. And one particular guy uh, saw me taking pictures and he got really angry and he followed me into the next marketplace and he grabbed a hold of my shirt and three other guys with machetes came and they wanted to hurt me. And they threw me up against a car and they said, give us your camera or you will die. (laughs) How many of you guys know if you go down to Salt Lake City right now and you take pictures around the temple, that's probably not what you're going to experience? You hope. (laughs) Fortunately, our friends acted quickly and were able to get in the midst, but uh, I recognize that many of us aren't going to live in a constant state of danger or with the constant risk of being hurt or maimed or beaten or persecuted for our faith. But for the majority of most Christians in the world and back then, this was an everyday reality. Because Rome at this time was subject to a ruler, let's just say it is Nero, who was extremely evil and extremely against the work and move of God. How is it that in the midst of all of that, God, the Holy Spirit could say this through Peter to the church? Has anybody ever wrestled with this just to think like, God, how is it that I'm supposed to honor somebody that is evil or that I disagree with? Maybe it's because we've mistaken agreement for honor. God never tells us to agree with the emperor. God doesn't tell you to agree with your governor or emperor or president or whoever it is, right? Fill in the blank. But he does tell us to honor them. All throughout this series, we're going to discuss different ways that we can actually do this. Because I believe this is meant to have implication for us today. Some of you are like, Pastor Jason, you're crazy. You're stepping into uh, the, the ring of fire. You're going to kick the hornet's nest. Good. Good because hopefully my my heart for you as your pastor is that God would help you understand the heartbeat of honor. How in the midst of a tyrannical society or time of persecution, he could say things like, honor everyone, especially the brotherhood, fear God, and honor your leaders, or in this case, this evil man. There must be something about honor that transcends categories, transcends personalities, transcends politics, transcends culture, transcends time, and it's a living invitation for you and I to grab a hold of. I believe that many of us are wrestling with this at this very moment. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Continuing on. He says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, I don't know about you guys, but I've had a limited amount of pain that I've had to deal with. And whenever I get pain, I'm like right to the Tylenol. Anybody else? Like ladies, those of you that give birth, I just, I I can't even comprehend or fathom how you do it. Okay. But we're talking about not just physical pain. We're talking about spiritual and emotional pain pain, and suffering. And I think that for most of us in the room, we can all relate to that, right? So he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, for doing the right thing, you will be blessed. I don't know about you guys, but when there are conditional promises made in the New Testament, I think we need to pay attention. I don't know about you guys, but I also want to be blessed. He goes on to say it this way, have no fear of those that persecute you, nor be troubled by them, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Tonight, I want to focus this first week on what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, what does it mean to honor God? because before we could talk about honoring each other, honoring our spouse, honoring our kids, honoring our neighbor, honoring those that we disagree with, we gotta start with God. Because if we can't get this button on the shirt right, come on, how many of you guys know it's like trying to button up a shirt and you start with the wrong button? It's gonna all be out of whack. For many of us, we don't have the right foundation in place. So it's really hard for us to honor others because we don't even know how to honor God. So tonight, I wanna focus our effort on what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, what it means to honor God. I believe that there's some practical ways that we can do that. Are you guys ready? Number one, we can do it with our worship. With our worship. How do we honor God, or in this case, Christ the Lord, as holy with our worship? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 15, verse eight. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees in this particular context. He's saying, you guys pay me a lot of lip service. You do the song and dance real well on Sundays, but your heart is missing from the equation. How many of you guys know that God is after the heart? God doesn't look at the appearances of man the way that we look at people. He looks at the heart. And he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts not to be far from him, but to be close. I believe honor begins in the heart. Honor begins in the heart. It begins with worship. The word worship is, is the word worth It's what you give your worth to. Let me ask you, What are you giving your worth to? What's worthy of your attention and your affection and your adoration and your praise? Well, let's make it practical. I think we we demonstrate what we give our worth to in three ways. Are you ready? Time, talent, and treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. Time is what you're investing your time in. What are you guys spending all your time doing? Hopefully it's doing good things that honor Jesus. But I think we need to ask ourselves this question. How are we investing our time? What are we giving our worth to in regards to our time? What about talent? How are you serving others with your passion and your gifts? What about your treasure? What are you giving your finances and your resources to? Jesus said this, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Did you guys know that our hearts are always tied to our money? I think it was Billy Graham. You guys know Billy Graham? He recently passed, but great evangelist, probably one of the greatest evangelists of our time and the 20th century. But he said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you worship. Now we don't uh, carry around a checkbook anymore, but uh, show me your credit card statement and I'll show you what you worship is essentially what Billy Graham was saying. What you give your time and your talent and your treasure to ultimately reflects what or whom you worship, what you give your worship to. Listen to what the Bible says about our treasure with regards to money in Proverbs chapter three verse nine. It says this: Honor the Lord your God with your wealth and with the first fruits. Say first fruits, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now, none of us are farmers, I don't think. Uh, some of you might have gardens in your backyard. <laughs> I used to until my dogs ate them all destroyed them. But the principle of this is bringing God not your leftovers, but your first fruits. And we do that through what we call the tithe. The tithe is essentially 10% of your income that you've set aside to honor God first with your increase or with your wealth. Tithing is the practice of honoring God first before you do anything else. It's recognizing that he's the Lord over your finances, that he's the one that brings increase into your life to begin with. It's the practice of acknowledging that everything you have comes from him. Now, in the West, we, we, most of us don't have to go out and harvest our food or slaughter animals. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> most of us don't grow crops and have to live from them. But for the majority of civilization, this is how people lived. And they were subject to, come on, drought and famine and pests they didn't have pesticide back then. So if vermin and locusts and things got in, they didn't eat because their stuff got destroyed. They lived with this constant realization and awareness of God being their provider. I wonder sometimes if we've lost sight of that every time we go through a drive through or swipe the credit card at the cashier at Smith's. There's actually a God in heaven who provides for us who is our source. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word spoken to him by God. Why? Because God's the provider of all things. So when you tithe, when you set aside 10% of your income, you're honoring the Lord and he blesses all of it. Why? Because it's all his anyways. Some of us go like, well, is, is, is a tithe like a debt you owe? No, it's a seed you sow. I look at it like this. When you have an apple and every apple, there is a seed, right? There is a core. You don't eat the seed, do you? You don't eat the core. Back in the day, you would plant that. If you ate the whole apple, now if I gave it to my dogs, they'd eat the whole apple, especially my English bulldog. She'll eat anything you put in front of her cardboard, plastic, apple cores, I mean, you name it. But you don't eat the core, you don't eat the seed. Because number one, it's not good for you, it won't nourish you, your, your body's not meant to digest it. But number two, it's meant to be planted. Why? So that you can have trees that produce more apples. Some of you have been eating your seed. Come on. And as a result, you wonder why you don't have enough. Here it is, you guys. God makes it really simple for us. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Some of you are like, I don't have anything. Trust me, most of the world lives on less than a dollar a day. We spend more on Starbucks coffee in a moment than most people do in a day. We have enough. The question is, how are we honoring the Lord with our heart? Do we see our money still as our money, or do we see it as God's? When I got the revelation of this, you guys, it changed everything for me. It's changed everything for our family. We would not be where we are today, even in the planting of this work, if we didn't sincerely believe this and practice this. Many of you in this room practice this. You honor the Lord with your wealth, and as a result, you recognize that God is the source and the provider. The Bible says that when we do this, he's also gonna pour out a blessing that we can't even contain. That's the promise, you guys. I don't know if you guys know that, but this is important. So we have to start with recognizing the things that our hearts are attached to. How's your heart with regards to money? Do you live to give or do you live to receive? Some of my favorite people are the ones that pick up the bill every time at dinner. You know why? Because they've learned how to live to give, not to receive. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You guys believe that tonight? It got real quiet in this Presbyterian church tonight. All right. I told you we're going to get into it. So number one, we got to honor the Lord as holy with our worship, with our time and our talent and our treasure. Number two, our attitudes. See, more than just giving, attitude affects our focus or our outlook on life. I'll say it this way. Your attitude is your filter. It colors, it shapes, and it influences everything that you do. When you have bad breath, you're the last to know. It's a lot like having a bad attitude. You're the last one to know it. But it affects everything, doesn't it? It shapes, it influences everything. Your relationships with other people and with God. It shapes the way that you treat people. If you have a poor attitude, you're going to treat people poorly. It shapes the way that you treat God. If you have a poor attitude, you're going to treat God poorly. This is why I believe sometimes we need to do a filter check. The other day I took my truck into the Ford dealership to get my oil changed and my tires rotated. Any of you guys do that? And the technician, probably because he was trying to upsell me, was like, man, we got to replace your air filter. It's really, really dirty. And I was like, nah, I'm good. You know, I'll, I'll do it next time. Right? You put it off. But in doing so, what I'm allowing to take place is I'm allowing what influences the health of my vehicle to be shaped and influenced by dirt and grime and pollution. Well, it's the same way in our lives. If we don't constantly doing a filter check and check our attitudes, we allow what the pollutants of the world and the things that have happened to us and our disappointments and frustrations. And I mean, right, we could all make a list to do what? To influence us and to pollute us. We need to have our air filters replaced. It's also kind of like having a dirty screen. A couple of weeks ago, I was editing some photos and doing some video editing on my computer. And uh, I kept trying to edit the lighting, because it looked like there was a little smudge, and uh, so I thought, man, I got to try to figure out how to fix this, and after working really hard to fix it, I couldn't figure out what was going on, and then I realized my screen was dirty, and there was a little bit of spit that had flown out of my mouth, and that had kind of saturated and got all sticky on my monitor. Any of you guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you are OCD, and you clean your monitor like once a week with the spray, the The dust-free cloth, right? How many of you guys are in that category tonight? A few of you. How many of you guys will let it pile up for weeks, if not months, before you even bother to do anything? Okay, a lot more of you in that second category. It's okay, guys. It's confession time. You're in a safe place, all right? The Lord sees all. The Lord knows all. But sometimes we got to clean our screens. And I'm talking about our attitudes. we got to have our attitude checked because our attitude is our filter. But our attitude is also our guide. It affects the way that we see, S-E-E, and seize, S-E-I-Z-E, opportunity. For many of us, we're looking for God to do something for us that God actually expects for us to do, and as a result, we're not seizing the opportunities that God is sending our way. I think sometimes we miss out on some of the greatest opportunities to make a difference in the lives of other people because we've got a bad attitude. Because we haven't done an attitude check. We haven't replaced our screen or filters. What do I mean by this? Do you view problems that happen to you as setbacks? Or do you see them as a setup? What do I mean by that, Pastor Jason? What I mean is this. Oftentimes we view the things that happen to us rather than as things that should happen for us. Meaning, if you can view what happens to you in life as an opportunity as something that's happened for you, it'll change everything. Meaning no matter what happens, you get fired from the job on, on Monday morning, guess what? That's an opportunity that God's put in front of you to seize something even better. I believe that because I've experienced that. I remember one time I was, confession time, I remember one time I was, uh, I was getting ready to uh, look for a new job and I was all excited you know, I was, I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to keep this to myself, but I'm going to get a new job and uh, I'm not going to tell anybody. And then I got let go from the job that I currently had. And I was so bummed. I was like, no, like, it, I wanted to leave on my terms. Anybody ever been there? You had like, you're, you're like giving, getting ready to give your two week notice and then they fire you? And you're like, rats. And I was like, no, I like had this whole plan. You know, 30 days, I'll do this. I actually was working a couple jobs. This was back in college. You know, I was working at Gap and I was working at Ruby's Diner and I was doing all kinds of odd jobs and I was just trying to like figure it out, right? Get myself through school. And I had this plan and it didn't happen the way that I thought it should. And I remember being like so bummed because I was like, man, that's not the way I wanted that to go down but God already had something else for me on the other side of it. I just couldn't see it because my attitude was off because I wasn't seizing the opportunities that God had in front of me. And I think a lot of times when we don't see our attitude as a guide, we see it as an obstacle. What do I mean by that? I was at the Toby Matt concert the other night. Any of you guys go to that on Friday night? We had, we saw a couple people there. I saw Nate there and Kimberly and Biffords and some others that were there. But, um, Toby Mack gave this great illustration about living on the edge of your chair. And he brought this chair on stage and he sat on it and he said, some of you view the world like this. And he was sitting back kind of sulking. He's like, I got to do this today. I got to do that. I got to go to the bank. I got to work for this jerk. I got to go file my taxes. I got to, you know, right? Fill in the blank. I got to do this. I got to do that. He said, but the truth is every day God has set before us the opportunity to sit on our chair like this and he got at the edge of it and he was like, all right, God, what do I get to do today? What do we get to experience today? What do you have for me today? See, I think sometimes we're limiting what God wants to do in our lives because we're following the wrong guide and we're allowing our attitude to become a crutch when in reality it was meant to be something that empowers us to seize and grab a hold of every opportunity. So how's your attitude Do you find yourself sitting on the back of your chair? Got to do this today. Or do you see your life through the lens of somebody that gets to do these things? Sometimes I think we get stuck and we don't know how to get unstuck because we haven't learned yet how to change our attitude. And I believe that when we change our attitude, we'll change our altitude, meaning how high we reach in our relationship with God and with others. I believe that we can change our attitude by acknowledging these three things. Are you ready? Here they are. That all of life is a gift, that we don't get to control the outcomes, and that life is not all about the temporal. What do I mean by that? When you see all of life as a gift, your response is this. Thank you, God. I'm so blessed to live in Utah. I'm so blessed to get to shovel snow today. I'm so blessed that I get to pay my taxes in a free nation that affords me so many luxuries. I'm so, right? So you start to seize the opportunity to see all of life as a gift. What do I mean by that? It's all because of the grace of God. And if your filter is through the grace of God, it's not by what you, what you can merit or make happen or manufacture or try to twist God's arm. If I'm good for a week straight, God will give me what I want doesn't work that way, you guys. God wants to give freely, but from a relationship of love and because you're obedient. Number two, we don't control the outcomes, meaning that you can work really hard at something and it may not happen or turn out the way you want it to. Some of us are so ridden with stress and anxiety in life. I know because I'm one of them because we try so desperately to control the outcome. If I just do this, then this will happen. If I just go to school and I get my degree, then the world will be my oyster and everything will happen and I'll have two cars and a great house, and right? And then reality hits. I don't work like that all the time. We don't get to control the outcome. And number three, life is not all about the temporal. It's not just about what we're doing today, you guys. It's about eternity. And I'm wondering if I'm talking to anybody that have learned how to live for eternity, that have learned to see the bigger picture of what God is actually inviting us into. So I want to ask you this question. How are you investing in eternity? How are you helping people get to know Jesus? Well, I think it starts with our attitude. Do we see our neighbor or do we see a caricature of our neighbor? A lot of times we allow social media and the lens and attitude of other people online to affect the way that we actually see people in real life. I found that when you actually get to know people, especially those that you disagree with and that look differently than you, think differently than you and talk differently than you, that in reality, a lot of times we share a common bond. Most people want to do right. Most people want what's best. Most people are not looking to exploit and harm and abuse. Now there are those that are out there, right? The evil people we talked about a couple weeks ago. But most people are just trying to get by. They're just trying to figure out how to feed their family. Come on. Trying to figure out how to pay the next bill, how to take care of rent. Some of you guys are right there right now. But if we give into caricatures, we allow the world to reshape our image of other people that we don't like, then we'll never see our neighbor as our neighbor. We'll always see them as them. That's the guy that lives across the street, and he's real grumpy and mean. That's the so-and-so who believes this. They're stupid. (laughs) Caricatures. Maybe it's not that simple. Maybe they've had some life experiences that are different than yours. Maybe they've had some hardships that are different than yours. Maybe the old guy across the street that's super grumpy is grumpy because he just lost his wife during Christmas. I'm just saying, we've got to learn how to see people and see them the way Jesus does. I believe that starts with our attitudes. So all of life's a gift. We don't control outcomes. And number three, it's not all about the temporal. It's not just about what we can have today. The third way that I believe that we honor God with our life is with our bodies. This is where we're going to have some fun tonight. More than just the food we eat, the way we honor God with our bodies is everything. And when I say bodies, what I'm really getting at is our sexuality, our sexuality, our thoughts, and our impulses. God created you and I to be sexual beings. You guys learned this yet? Okay, do I have to quote the line from Kindergarten Cop? Boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. Are we okay? All right, I just want to make sure we figured out the anatomy here. I can't believe you just said I'm going to hear about it from my wife tonight on that one. (laughs) I just want to make sure that you guys know that God has created us sexually, right? Male and female. Are we on the same common ground tonight? Okay. And guess what? God's design for us sexually is what? Say it again. It's what? Don't get all nervous now. Come on. Gosh, I love it. God's design for us is good. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Let's, let's read this together, okay? The proud religious law keepers came to Jesus and they tried to trap him by saying, does the law say that a man can divorce his wife for any reason? So the context of this, this passage is divorce. And Jesus said to them, have you not read that he who made them in the first place made them what? Man and woman. Okay, he goes on to say, next slide. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will live with his wife. The two will become what? God made our parts to fit together. The two will become what? One, I just want to make sure we're tracking tonight. So they are no longer two, but one. Jesus says it twice, because apparently the Pharisees had a hard time hearing it too. The two are no longer two, but one. Therefore, let no man divide what God has put together. Let no man redefine what God has called good. Let no man redefine your sexuality for you. Because here's the plan. It started in a garden. When God made them male and female, in the image of God, he created them. Genesis 1.27. Jesus is quoting Genesis 1.27, and he's, he's alluding to Genesis 1.27, but he's quoting, actually, Genesis chapter 2. Go there with me real quick. I don't have this one on the screen. All right, so we're, we're spitballing tonight. Here we go. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called, every living creature, that was its name. Let's skip down. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, whoa, man. That's like a classic preacher joke you have to make at that point. He said, this is at last. He, 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 he burst into poetry, ladies. This is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, the word is Isha. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. He actually renames himself in light of the woman. Up until that point, God referred to him as Adama, as Adam, as the man. He bursts into song, you guys, because he sees this beautiful woman that God brings to him so that what? The two could become one again. It's the most beautiful picture when it's right, when it's according to God's design. When it's outside of that, it becomes distorted it becomes perverted and twisted like all things in our life that are meant to be gifts. Sex is good when it's being lived out between a man and a woman, a man who leaves his father and mother and comes together with his wife and vice versa. Because the goal, you guys, is not just a good time. The goal isn't just physical pleasure. God created your body parts to work that way so that there would be pleasure, hallelujah, in the words of Medea, hallelujah, hallelujah, Hallelujah. God's not against your your pleasure. He's not against you feeling good. But the real purpose of it, the real purpose of it is oneness. It's unity. Here's the word, intimacy. It's two becoming one. And for any of you that lived through the 90s, there were all kinds of R&B songs about two becoming one. Jesus's goal for our life is oneness. Now, what is Pastor Jason not saying? What I'm not saying is if you're single, you're outside of God's will. Please hear me on this, all right? When I'm saying one thing, don't automatically assume the inverse of it, okay? What I'm saying is that for your sexuality, God's desire and goal for your life is oneness. It's intimacy. With one person, not multiple. Now, in Jesus' day and age, and, and particularly in the context of 1 Peter, people, it wasn't uncommon for people to have multiple partners. And we're actually seeing this again in our time, the issue of uh, polyamory, right? Multiple people hooking up. Some of you know people that have been involved in polygamy. I've met quite a few living here in Utah, those that are still in it and those that have come out of it, okay? But God's design and intention was always for the two to become one, And that's Jesus' response to these Pharisees who were trying to trip him up. Now, for those of you that have been through a divorce, listen, there's grace for that. Amen? Amen. Some of you were in a terrible, horrible relationships with abusive people and you needed to get out. That's called wisdom, okay? So sometimes people can use these scriptures and passages to try to twist and try to abuse and try to hold things over people. That's not Jesus' heartbeat here. Jesus' heartbeat is actually responding in a way to the Pharisees that are actually trying to use scripture against Jesus. Do you guys see the contrast here? The the law keepers, can we go back one slide, Phil? The proud religious law keepers came to Jesus. Did they come to him because they really wanted to sit at his feet and learn from him? No. They came to him because they had an agenda, because they wanted to use their knowledge of scripture against him to see if they could trip him up. That's the... What's the saying? The pot calling the kettle black. They were trying to come against Jesus with his own word. I like that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. You guys seen that one or read that book? (laughs) Where the witch in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, begins to tell Aslan, the Christ figure in the story, kind of like what it's all about. And he goes, don't cite the ancient book at me. I was there when it was written. You guys remember that line? Beautiful line. You guys, it's his word. Jesus was there in the beginning with God and the Holy Spirit at creation. So the fact that they're trying to twist and distort this, from us, it's easy, or from our position, it's easy to look at that and go like, see, there go the Pharisees again, but you guys, we do it too. We try to use scripture sometimes to justify our own actions and to try to twist things or have a one-up on people. And that's, not how we're going to honor people. So what gets in the way of of this, of the two becoming one, and what gets in the way of sex being good, the way that God God defines it and the way that God designed it? Sin does. How are you defining sin today, Pastor Jason? I'm defining it as your self-inspired narrative. It's the story that you believe about yourself that's contrary to God's story for you. Every time we sin, we're believing a different story. If I believe that I'm going to have more pleasure outside of my marriage to my wife and I go and I sleep around, I'm believing a false narrative, a self-inspired, self-constructed narrative that I've bought into to justify my actions. Do you guys see the way that works? It doesn't matter if it's this or that, or just cheating a little or whatever. Anytime we sin, we are believing someone else's story. We're believing our story and we become self-deluded. Sin is ultimately selfishness given a throne. So the question is, who sits on the throne of your heart? Who sits on the throne, meaning who has access and the ability to speak into your life? who defines what is good in your life? If you're living from a self-inspired narrative and you're believing your own story, then you're still ruling your life and you're still on the throne of your heart. And let me ask you, how's that working out for you? For those of you watching online, how's that been working out for you? But if Jesus, come on, our Lord and Savior... Our advocate and helper is the one sitting on our throne. Guess what? He's going to help you deal with your sin problem. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15 says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, an advocate, since we have a great high priest and advocate who has ascended into heaven, let's go to that next one. There it is. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes, you guys. He knows exactly what it's like to face the temptations that you face. Long before there was ever a smartphone or a porn hub or a Netflix or whatever, come on, Jesus knew what it was like to have to face this kind of sexual temptation. He's not a priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but he is one who was what? Tempted in every way and just as we are, but yet he did not sin. You know why this is good news and why I thank God for this? Because I can look to him to help me with my sin problem. Because he knows what it's like to be in my shoes, but persevere but triumph, but overcome. And that should give some of you guys some hope in this room tonight. I like the way that John says it to his church in 1 John chapter 2, verse one. He says, my little kids, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, 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 if anyone does sin, guess what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus stands, come on, he stands in your place, at the cross, taking on all of your sin, all of your porn addiction, all of your crap, so that you don't have to deal with it, so that you don't have to stand in judgment for it, so you don't have to give an account for it. Praise be to God that we have a high priest and an advocate with the Father who knows and who does something about it who gave his own blood so that we could be set free and washed clean from every iniquity, from all unrighteousness. If you don't know Jesus, there's no hope for you because only Jesus can deal with your sin problem. Only Jesus can become the author of your story. I think many of us need to get to a place where we're, we're sick and tired of trying to believe our own self-inspired narratives, and we need to start believing the narrative that God is writing for our lives. Can I tell you guys, he is such a good author. He is so good with what he does with our story. What the enemy meant to do in your life through shame and through guilt and through destruction that was passed down to you through a parent or through an older brother or sibling or friend or first person who exposed you to pornography when you were a kid. The Lord will take that. I'm speaking to some of you tonight because I know There's some of you in this room right now and watching online and wrestling with this that are really struggling. And you're not struggling because of a lack of desire to do what's right. You're struggling because it has such a hold on your life. And Jesus the righteous wants to come in and set you free and liberate you from that prison cell. But it starts with whose story you're gonna believe. Many of us get stuck believing our own story. And we're in this cycle of shame and guilt and condemnation because we don't know how to get free from it. Can I give you a little piece of information? You were never intended to free yourself. You didn't save yourself. Jesus did. Jesus is the liberator. Jesus is the one who conquered sin. In fact, it goes even further than that. The Bible says that Jesus, he who knew no sin became our sin. He who knew no curse became our curse so that we could what? Become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Even on my worst day, if I believe that, that's true. Some of you are like, but how can that be? Well, whose story do you believe? Whose story do you believe? Whose narrative do you align with. Each and every day, hear me on this, and I know we're going a little over our time, but I just, I feel the need to address this. Each and every day we get up, we make agreements with what narrative or story we're going to believe. Some of you have made agreements with religion, and so you've tried to manage your sin problem. This is where you hide it, and you put on a real good show, but you don't ever bring it out into the light so that Jesus can heal it. Some of you have tried to not just manage your sin, but you've tried to pretend it doesn't exist. And we're not talking about living in denial here, you guys. The truth is, God invites all of us to bring our skeletons out of the closet so that they can dance at the party. You know what I've learned about dancing? When you're really free, you don't care what people think about you anymore. When you know that Jesus has dealt with your sin issue, it's no longer going to have power over you. That's why he invites you to bring it out into the light where you can be set free. When it's still in darkness, it can hide and fester and grow friends. But when it's in the light where everybody can see it, come on, it no longer has power because that's the only thing it can do. It can hold power over you if you allow it to have power over you. So I really believe that the Lord wants to do this for some of you guys this year. And maybe even here tonight, he wants to help liberate you from a life of sin, from your own self-inspired narrative. And then lastly, when we honor God with our bodies, we allow him to decide what is pure or impure in our life. We're living in a time I didn't expect this to get so heavy tonight, but we're living in a time where people are beginning to call evil good and good evil. It's no longer even this is sin and I know I shouldn't be doing it. It's now openly celebrated and embraced and advanced. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah had it actually figured out thousands of years ago. Here's what he says in chapter five, verse 20. "Woe, meaning like, whoa, to those who call evil good, Careful, careful those of you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're living in a day and age where we're allowing others to redefine the terms of the debate. We're allowing them to redefine what is good. It doesn't matter if it's Hollywood or this movement or that movement. We allow others to redefine for us what is good, then we need to be prepared to experience the consequences. Can we still have compassion on people that view things differently than us? Absolutely. Can we still have compassion on people that are opposed to the things of God? Absolutely. How do I know this? Because the Bible says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we need to be very careful, guys, that we don't pick up stones when in reality we should be praying. When in reality, we should be offering to help. When in reality, we should be loving. Can we still have compassion and yet remain true to our convictions? That's really what I'm saying tonight. What does the word of God say? 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses 15 through 20. Verse 15, don't you realize that your body's, Are actually parts of Christ. You guys, this is a great mystery. I don't know how this works anatomically or metaphysically or biologically or spiritual, metaphysically, esoterically. I'm going to run out of superlatives here. I don't know how it all works, but I do know this is true. He says, don't you realize that your bodies, he's talking about your physical bodies, are actually a part of Christ. Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never! And you don't realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united and become what? One. Here it is again. He's quoting Jesus, you guys. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Therefore, verse 18... Run from sexual sin. Run from sexual sin. Don't casually walk away, real slowly, with a little glance over your shoulder. He-he. Run. You know what this brings to mind? It brings to mind Joseph in the Old Testament. You guys read the story? Potiphar's wife is just like throwing herself at him. And what does he do? He runs not power walk, (laughs) he runs, he runs. Why? Because no other sin, I thought all sin was the same. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Are you telling me that there's actually certain kinds of sins that affect us more than others? That's not what I'm telling you. It's what first Corinthians is saying. It's what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul. For sexuality or sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize He's speaking to the church, you guys. First Corinthians, the church at Corinth needs to hear this. We need to hear this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. Therefore, you don't belong to yourself, Christian. You don't belong to yourself, American. You don't belong to yourself, Utah. You don't belong to yourself, Courageous Church. You don't belong to yourself, Salt Lake City, because God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Do we believe this church? What's the bottom line? We've got to learn how to honor God with our sexuality, with our choices, with our whole body. Because the manner in which we honor Christ the Lord is the manner in which we are able to offer people hope. Can we go back to that very first slide, maybe the fourth slide, actually. Can we do that, Phil? Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. By what? Honoring Christ the Lord as holy. The manner in which we honor God with our bodies is the manner in which we're going to be able to offer hope to others. How do I know this? Because if you're in prison, it's kind of hard to offer hope to other prisoners, But if you've been set free, if you've learned how to dance in the light with all of your stuff hanging out, come on, somebody. All of your imperfections and weaknesses and flaws. Come on, we all have them. We all have a past. Pastor Jason's got a past. You've got a past. But come on, let's let our past be our past, church. Let's stop going to the graveyard at midnight and digging up the body. Let's let the Lord bury that thing and let's put that thing to death and the Holy Spirit will help us. How? By Coming into the light. What does that mean? When you and I trust that we can trust others with our stuff, God can heal it so that we can offer people hope. Go back, Phil, to that last slide that we were just on so that we can give a reason for the hope that we have right now. People need hope. They need it. Some of you need it. But it starts with honor. Honor Christ the Lord as holy